Now this morning we have a special guest speaker who is becoming a friend of mine. Her name is Ingrid Davis. Ingrid was here preaching and teaching at our women's retreat over at City Church Central Friday night and then all day yesterday. And my wife kept texting me reports about how absolutely amazing the women's retreat was. And so would you with me give a warm welcome to Ingrid Davis. Ingrid, come on up here. Well, good morning, City Church. Oh, come on, I checked the box scores this morning. You are much happier than that. Good morning, City Church. I'm so excited to be here with you. I heard my mother's voice come from the kitchen. Ingeri, ikke gjør det der. Ingeri, ikke gjør det der. In her Norwegian language, I was a four-year-old, and for some reason I decided to eat a bowl of cereal on our brand new rocking chair in the living room. Um, thus why she would say, Ingrid, don't do that. But for some reason, a rebellious little four-year-old, I kept rocking in the chair and rocking and rocking until the inevitable happened. The whole rocking chair fell backwards, all of the spindles broke, and there was cereal all over the living room. I did what any respectable four-year-old would do. I ran away from home. I ran down Birch Lane and hid between the Sinclair's oak trees. I could see my house, but I was far enough away, and I was hidden. I was a bad little girl and deserved punishment, and I was just waiting for my father to come home from work, which was going to be shortly. Running away, we all do it. We run away from relationships. We run away from God. Some of you are running away from yourself. Why do we run? We feel like we're failures, disappointments, deserving of punishment, rebellious. We run. Scripture is full of characters and stories of people running away. The women this weekend explored Adam and Eve, who were created as the beloved, created to be in intimacy with God, and yet they got sidetracked by the enemy of their soul, who sold them a bill of goods and told them, if you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't die. Surely you won't. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And they bought the story. They sinned. And then there was ultimate destruction. And what did they do? They ran away. They ran and they hid. They ran covered with shame. They covered themselves, hoping that maybe if we put this mask on, we can hide. Elijah, he had just taken down the 450 prophets of Baal, saw God miraculously work, and the next scene, he's running away because of fear of Jezebel and Ahab. He had just seen God work, and the next minute, fear of man, fear of woman, he hightails it and runs. How about Jonah? Jonah receives this incredible, very direct call from God to go to Nineveh, and what does Jonah do? He hightails it in the opposite direction and goes down towards Tarshish. One of the most well-known stories, if you read the New Testament, of running away is the prodigal son. 
The prodigal basically son tells his dad, Dad, I want my inheritance early, which is basically saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And he runs away and he squanders it. But the character that I want to look with you today is Peter. I think Peter is a lot like many of us. It's a story of a man of great character and yet huge failures. So the story of Peter, if I were to give you a character study of Peter, Peter listens, he gets the call of God and it says immediately he runs, he follows God. He leaves his nets and he runs after Jesus immediately. Peter's the one of all of the disciples that gets out of the boat and walks towards Jesus. Granted, he sunk, but he got out of the boat. Peter's the one on the Mount of Transfiguration when their voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son, and with him is Moses and Elijah, and, and Peter just says, well, let's do something. Let's build tents for them. Peter was a man of action. Peter was a man with the right answers. He got the answers right. Jesus said, who do you, all of these people, who do they say I am? And they give answers, and then he says to his disciples, Peter, and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter that speaks up. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends that to him and says, you have been given that from God. And he says, I will call your name Cephas, which means the rock. How would you like to be called the rock? And on this rock, I will build my church. But in the very next moment, when Jesus is telling the disciples, this is how it's going to all go down. This is how it's going to play out. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter says, no way will I allow that. And Jesus' next words to Peter are, Satan, get behind me. How would you like to be called that? Satan, get thee behind me. And then as Jesus is moving towards the cross in Mark 14, Jesus tells the disciples, you can't come with me where I'm going, which meant to the cross. He says, you will all fall away. And Peter speaks up again, and he says, even if they all fall away, I'll never fall away from you. I will die for you. I would never deny you, even if they. And after a lackluster performance in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, he's one of the inner circle. He was invited by Jesus to go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. And what do they do? They all fall asleep. And then when the soldiers come, Peter's the man of action that pulls the sword out and cuts the ear of the soldier off. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And then it says in Mark 14, when Jesus is arrested, Mark says, they all ran away, which included Peter. But Peter follows from behind, and he goes to where Jesus is being tried and brought before 
the religious leaders. Jesus said to him, Peter, you won't die with me. Actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And I find Luke's description of this in Luke chapter 22 very telling. So I want to just read that quickly with you. It says, then they seized him and led him away. This is Luke 22, verse 54, if you want to follow. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And then listen to this verse. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Literally, while the words are still in his mouth, I do not know him. The rooster crows. And verse 61 to me is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The Lord turned and looked at him. Can you imagine that look of disappointment? I don't know if Jesus was disappointed in Peter, but I know he was disappointed for him. The words are still in his mouth. The rooster crows, and Luke paints a picture that Jesus looked right at him. Can you imagine that feeling this morning? And it says he went out and he wept bitterly. He must have felt like such a failure. Have you ever felt like that? Where you would feel just the eyes of the Lord. I don't think they're eyes of anger. I really don't. I think they're eyes of disappointment and sadness. Because he actually told Peter, Peter, I know this is going to happen. And I want you to know that I'm going to pray for you. And when you get through this trial, I want you to tell your brothers. He knew it was coming. And he looked at him. And Peter went off and wept bitterly. So what did Peter do? He went back to what he knew. He was just a fisherman when Jesus called him. He left his nets and he followed, ran after Jesus. And so what does he do now? He ran back to what he knew. I can imagine in his thinking it's, well, this discipleship thing didn't work out very well. Let me go back to fishing. Let me go back to what I know. 
a failure, hopeless, bitterness, disappointment, regret. And then three days later, something happens, and the news starts to spread. Mark 16, when the angel appears to the women, the angel says to them, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen. In Luke 24, the women come to the disciples in the upper room, and the disciples don't believe them. Women, what are you talking about? Jesus is raised from the dead. We saw him die on the cross, but Peter stood up and ran. He ran to the grave. John also talks about it. And John says that when the women told them, both he and Peter ran. Now, this is John's version. John says, of course, I got to the, I got to the tomb first. Um, I can just imagine what the relationship between John and Peter uh, was. But they, though John got to the grave first, the tomb first, it was Peter that ran in. And even Paul, as he's speaking about the resurrection, says this. Paul tells the story of the resurrection. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and to the others. It is so interesting that all of these gospel writers, and Paul himself, are pointing us something out to us. Jesus appeared to the disciples and Peter. Why? Because if anybody needed to hear good news, if anybody wanted to believe that there was actually maybe hope that he could get this right, that he could go before Jesus and tell him he was sorry, it was Peter. Hope was starting to get stirred up within him. And so the next scene, we see him and John and the disciples in John 21, they're back out fishing. Go back to what we know. Have you ever felt like that? You know, this Christian thing didn't work, this church thing didn't work, this whatever God called me to isn't really working well, so I'm going to just run. Go back to what's comfortable. Go back to what I know. That's what Peter and the disciples did. And to tell you what great fishermen they are, they fish the entire night, and they don't catch a thing. I mean, they're like failures even in fishing, what they know. And then the story picks up in John 21. They're out fishing. They haven't caught a thing. And then on the shore, they see a figure from far away walking along the coast. They don't know who it is at first, but they hear this man say to them, hey, guys, did you catch anything? Kind of like bait room uh, or whatever, bait room, I don't know what the word is, but you know, he's kind of mocking them a little bit, like, did you guys get anything? Got any fish stories to tell me? I think Jesus is teasing them. He's kind of working with them a little bit. And then John and Peter hear him say, if you haven't caught anything, go ahead and throw the net on the other side. Now, all of a sudden, something gets triggered. Because Peter was there that first time when Jesus was actually using his boat as a podium. 
He said he'd been fishing all night. Jesus says, Peter, did you get anything? And he goes, we didn't get anything all night, Jesus. And Jesus, while he's standing on his boat preaching, says, Peter, just put the net on the other side. And it says there was such a load that it broke the nets. And now all of a sudden they hear this man on the shore say, throw your nets on the other side. And they caught this great number of fish, actually 153. I'm not sure who caught them, and I'm not sure why we need to know that, but there were 153 fish in that net. And immediately John says, it is the Lord. And Peter, even though they're probably only a few yards offshore, dives in. Peter is hoping, beyond hope, that maybe Jesus will take him back and restore him. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. Nobody dared ask him who they are because they knew it was Jesus. When they got to the shore, there was a charcoal fire burning. Peter's senses were getting triggered because the last time he smelled a charcoal fire, he was denying Jesus. I wonder how he felt. Did he ever, did he see his eyes again? Did, was he even ready to look up and see what Jesus' eyes would be towards him? But Jesus gives them breakfast. Bread and fish he took and gave them. And so I want to pick up on John 21. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. John chapter 21, starting at verse 15. Jesus finally calls Peter over. And I call this part, love restores. Love restores. When they had finished breakfast, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. Now, who, what's the more than these? Is it the 153 fish and all the miracles that he's seen with his own eyes, Jesus do? Is it the more than these of the ones that Peter said, even if they deny you, I'll never deny you? Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How many times does Jesus ask him the question? Three. How many times did he deny him? Three. It's interesting, in the, in the English translation, we miss a little bit of what the gospel writer was saying to us. Because when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? The word he uses there is agapeo, agape love, abundant, unconditional, God-like love. Do you love me like that, Peter? And Peter's response is, Lord, 
I phileo you, which is the word brotherly love, where Philadelphia comes from. Do you love me with an unconditional love like I love you? And Peter says, I brotherly love you. I love you as best I can. A second time, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me like I love? And Peter, the second time, says, Jesus, you know that I phileo you. I brotherly love you. But the third time, Jesus is so gracious. The third time, he says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you brotherly love me? And Peter says, you know everything, Lord. I love you the best I can. And Peter was restored. And not only was he restored, if you go on to the next verse, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Basically, what Jesus was saying is to show him by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. He, too, was going to die on a cross. And then he says, follow me. You see, love doesn't just restore Love reinstates. And God knows everything about you this morning. He knew that you were going to be here. He knows you. He has seen you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. He sees you. He knows you. And the best part, he agapes you. He loves you with an unconditional love. You see, love restores and love reinstates. To Adam and Eve, God came and he said, where are you? God knew where they were. It wasn't like he had to get a GPS. He knew where they were. But he wanted them to know. Adam and Eve, I want you to know I'm coming looking for you. Where are you? You're hiding. What happened? To Elijah, that great prophet who went and hid from Jezebel and Ahab, it says God came to him in a still, small voice. To Jonah, this guy that was running away from his calling and his purpose, he got a second chance calling in the belly of a fish. Please don't go there. Follow him. But he got a second chance. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go. I have a calling on your life. I have a purpose for you. Go. To the prodigal in Luke 15. In the prodigal, it says that while he was far off, you see, the prodigal son squandered everything. He made a mess of his life. He made a mess of his freedom. And he said, I'm just going to, Go back to my father and tell him I'm useless and I'm unworthy of love, but will you at least let me be one of your servants? And it says, while he was far off, his father looked up and he had compassion on his son who squandered everything. And it says he ran. He ran to his son. 
and to Peter, with the charcoal fire burning next to him, with all of the memories of what had just happened, of his denial and his failure, Jesus offers him breakfast. He breaks bread with him, and then he restores him three times. You see, love restores, and love reinstates. And what about little Ingrid, hiding between, uh, behind the Sinclair's oak trees? Sure enough, I saw my dad's 1964 orange Cortina go down the road, into the driveway, into the house. I was watching it all. It was in the house, I'm sure, long enough for my mother to tell him what a disobedient and naughty daughter he has and that she ran away. He came out of the front door. He got back in the Cortina. He came out of the driveway and he started driving down the street, calling my name. Ingrid! Ingrid, where are you? Didn't take him very long to see me, hiding between those trees. That four-year-old little girl thought, well, the short life that I had is now over. <laughs> I'm ready for dad's punishment and his wrath. I was shaking. I couldn't look at his eyes for fear of his disappointment. My father leaned over and he opened the passenger door and all he said was, come on home, it's time for dinner. God is saying to many of you this morning, it's time to come home. He has prepared an amazing table for you and there is a place at the table for you. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you feel like whatever failure in your life, whatever thing has happened to you that you have said, I, that has defined me. I will never be able to outlive this one. God could never love that. If you knew the real me, you would never love me and God would never accept me. If you're that person this morning, I want you to know that God says, I want you to come home. Love restores. Some of you have been hurt and wounded. Things have happened, bad things have happened in your life and you're angry with God and you're angry with everybody else or you're angry with yourself. God can handle that. Because love restores and love reinstates. And he wants you to come home. For some of you, you've never come home before. For some of you, you never really knew there was an invitation that there was actually a God that loves you and that no matter what you've done or where you've come from, he loves you and he wants you to come into relationship with him. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's doubt, whatever it is, whatever is keeping you. Maybe today is the day that you say, I want to come home. So the prayer teams are going to be here around the sanctuary. They want to meet you here in this place. No failure is fatal. No mistake will have to define you or disqualify you. 
The table's here. Jesus is waiting for you. The love of the Father wants to be poured out over you. So will you come? While the band is playing, if you're feeling that nudge, there's just something going on on the inside and you feel your heart pounding and you're like, I'm going to sit here as long as I can. I'm going to sit here. Don't. Come. Because when you come, there's freedom. When you come to God, there's hope. So will you come home? Will you come home running this morning? Stand together.
in God's presence. I know that the sermon that Ingrid felt called to deliver to us this morning has touched people's hearts. I want to encourage you that as we move towards the conclusion of this sermon or this service, that if you would like to be prayed with or prayed for, I want to encourage you as we conclude that you would come forward. Our prayer team are along the walls. Find someone, go up to them, and ask them to pray with you and to pray for you. If God is tugging your heart, calling you through and past the guilt and the shame of where you've been and what you've done, and you sense that God is calling you to come home to him, better and more accurately to come home to be with him. I want to encourage you to step out after the pastoral blessing and come down and be prayed with and prayed for. Following the pastoral blessing, if you would like to remain in worship, I want to encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for your love for us that is so tangible, so real through Christ. Jesus, I pray over each individual, but specifically those who are feeling the Spirit's tug, that it is time to make that choice to be a follower of Jesus or to come back home again and to be with God. Lord, I pray that you would seal those decisions that will be made here in just a few moments. Seal them with your Spirit. And now may the Lord bless you May the Lord keep you. May God turn his face towards you. And may God give you his peace and his presence through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Let's worship together as you leave.